This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. It's a long winter, but we've got some ideas for how to make it a little easier. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and from WBEZ Chicago, this is Reset. For many of us, taking a dip in Lake Michigan is an activity saved for a sweltering summer day. But our next guest has discovered the joy of winter swims in our Great Lake. Allison Cuddy is a freelance journalist and former director of the Chicago Humanities Festival, recently wrote for WBEZ.org about how she grew to love cold water swimming. Allison, swimming in Lake Michigan in January? How did this start? You know, it was a couple of things. One, it was the pandemic and the restrictions of that. You know, the pools weren't open and we were all looking for something to do that felt safe, especially that first winter. Um, And I saw other people doing it and thought, why not? Why not try extending my swim? I was already swimming in the lake into November, so I was used to cold water. But I had never swum through the winter and in the ice and all of that, so mm-hmm. I gave it a whirl. So it was sort of like both a push and a pull. So tell me about that first time that you actually did a cold water swim. What do you remember about that? <laughs> in some ways, I feel like swimming is always a little bit cold. You know, I grew up in in Winnipeg. I know you spent part of your life in Toronto, so twenty you know, plus years. Yeah, you know, <laughs> but from... I wasn't going in the water okay. in the winter. <laughs> yeah, well, the lakes in Manitoba are super cold, so it kind of got it's yeah. in my swimming DNA that you know. Swimming is a cold activity, and even getting in the pool to me feels chilly. But those first moments, I mean, it is something you have to adjust to, take a deep breath, Mm -hmm. kind of like react to the cold. Um, Are you plunging right in or are you easing in? I ease in, and I highly encourage that, you know, like sort of acclimate a little bit and get used to it, stick your feet in. Your toes in first. Yeah, your toes. To the ankles. Yeah, yeah. Slowly go in, and then I usually go in on my back as if that somehow protects me a little bit more. (laughs) And then you just got to go, you know, and breathe deeply and and enjoy the experience. You've got this great uh, description in the the article of the actual preparation of, of getting in, kind of similar to how you, you just explained. But walk us through that full prep, right. just getting psyched up to get in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, warm clothing is key and clothing that you can get in and out of quickly because you really don't want to be hanging out on a cold shore, fumbling with buttons and all of that. So I wear layers and layers of, col- of clothes just to kind of get to the lake and out. Um, But I wear gear. I have a big, thick neoprene cap I wear on my head. I wear big, like, scuba diving gloves on my hands so they don't stick, you know. And, I, you know, it's your digits that you really need to protect. And then the same on my feet. Otherwise, I'm wearing a normal bathing suit. You know, it it sounds counterintuitive. Most people say, you you know, you you should... So not a wetsuit. Not a wetsuit, exactly. Why don't you wear a wetsuit? But getting in and out of a wetsuit, takes a lot of time and the air is actually often colder than the water. So you you risk exposure, um, hypothermia, all of that. So 
I go. I opt for something that is easy to get out of. Now, some people do wear wetsuits, and often they'll just put their warm clothing over them and then get in their cars and go home. Oh, okay. So uh, how does your body, though, just not go into shock? Because, again, you're only wearing a swimsuit at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, you definitely get used to it. I acclimate, and I swim all year round. So I, I kind of swim, what I say, down the thermometer. You know, the water gets increasingly cold, and it's sort of the inverse of the frog, the theoretical frog in the pot of water that slowly comes to a boil, you just adjust to that and you get experience to understanding what it feels like to get colder and colder. And are we talking morning swims here or evening swims? When, when are you doing this? Um, usually morning. I love I love the lake. This is why I do it. I love being in the lake. I love being around the lake. I think it's one of the most, or if not the most beautiful part of Chicago. So I go to see the sunrise. It was so nice to see the sun actually appear this morning after like what weeks I know, of it's incredible. gray weather. Yeah, yeah it's, it's incredible. That, and this is actually warm for January. I know, right? right? Now. <laughs> but, but we'll take it. <laughs> Talk about the community around cold swimming. Like, are you typically the only one out no. at this time of year, Allison? There are other people. Um, it's a smaller group than you'll see in the summer, for sure. A hearty bunch. Um, but, you know, it's... it's do a, you know each other? We do. A lot of us do know each other. Some people show up and, and swim for a brief period, and I don't get to know them. And there are always new people coming in the mix. Not necessarily in January, but, you know, in the fall. Yeah. Um, and they're a great group to swim with. You know, you're essentially on your own, but we share tips about gear. We keep an eye out for each other. We observe if we've gone too far or we've been in the lake a little bit longer. So, you know, it feels the whole buddy system approach to swimming applies to winter swimming. It's much better to have company around you. While you're out there and you're actually swimming, what are you thinking about? Is it total meditation? It, it gets there. Sometimes I'm just thinking, I'm cold, I'm cold, I'm cold. <laughs> so you're actually thinking about it. So I would think that you would want to do the reverse, Not try to get your mind it. off it. Yeah, well, I mean, I do. I count strokes. I look up. You know, I'm on my back. I look up at the sky. I look at the sun coming up. I, the, You know, there's all kinds of birds and waterfowl and, you know, the, the wind is active. So I'm really, it, like, slowly sinking into the experience and enjoying nature. But definitely those first few strokes, I'm just like... Ouch. You know, yeah. it's cold. It's cold. <laughs> and sometimes we'll say that. Wow, it's really cold. As if, As if what? you're shocked. Big surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so beyond the, the obvious, which is the temperature, what would you say, Allison, is the biggest difference between cold and warm water swimming? Yeah, I think that the lake is so much more alive in the winter. You know, I mean, one huge factor that isn't there in the summer is ice. Ice comes. I've swum in ice, all kinds of ice. So it's fascinating to watch how the lake can change. Um, you know, it can be... We have a surfing community in Chicago. Not everybody knows about that, but their season is the winter because the waves get bigger. So you you really see the power and the majesty of of Lake Michigan in the winter in a way that I think is exceptional. Yeah. Well, what advice do you want to give to folks listening right now who maybe love swimming and they want to try this out? Any tips to do it safely? Yeah. I mean, I am no expert and I think everybody has their own internal like thermostat, right? So not this isn't for everyone. Um, I would say, as I said earlier, you know, ease your way in. Maybe go watch. Find a, there are communities up and down the lake who do this. So find one of those communities. Maybe go hang out and watch what they do. See if this is something that looks interesting to you. I'm not a polar plunger. I really actually don't enjoy that. Really? But you might go try a polar plunge and see if you actually like the experience of being in cold water or the exhilaration that comes after, because that is definitely the payoff. But, 
you know, learn, read. There's some great resources. This is an exploding kind of sport. You know, there are many more people not only swimming in in natural bodies of water, Mm -hmm. but swimming in cold water. And so there's some great resources. Like there's the Outdoor Swimming Society. It's British. They are way ahead of the curve on (laughs) on cold water swimming, right? And so you can learn a lot about what you should do to prepare and how you can ease your way in. And you talked about the feeling being exhilarating, you know, once you're out. Has this... Would you say this cold water swimming, has it helped you get through the long Chicago winters? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's a fantastic way for me and for the people who do it um, to to sort of, you know, keep keep afloat, so to speak, you know, <laughs> stick together. There's a whole communal aspect to it that really is important and a sense of connection to other people and to the natural world. That was Allison Cuddy. You can read her full article along with some beautiful photographs of her regular swim at WBEZ.org. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you, Sasha. So maybe you just listened to Allison's interview and you found it inspiring, but you're not quite ready to dive into Lake Michigan. Don't worry, we've got some indoor activities for you to try too. You're probably familiar with journaling. It's a great way to get thoughts down on paper or keep a log of your day. Rhonda Wheatley is an artist and instructor at the Hyde Park Art Center who thinks it can be so much more than that. Rhonda, you teach a course at the Art Center specifically about art journaling. What is that? Yeah, so art journaling, the difference is it can be everything that writing in a journal can be, but you're adding some kind of visual creativity to it. You know how sometimes people doodle while they're on the phone or while they're thinking? It could be as simple as doodling, which can help a person to relax, to to center into their thoughts. But then you can do full-on art, watercolors, everything artistic that you can do, you can do in a journal. And I think you can complement a written journal with art journaling, or you can make your whole journal all about art. And when I say compliment, I mean you have your written journal, you write about your day, you write about what you're frustrated about, what you hope for, and maybe you take a takeaway from it. You pull something out of it and you create a piece of art around it. You can do oil pastels, you can do colored pencils, Mm. anything around it. Um, I sometimes will take collage elements and put them together or paint over them and then I save them to the end. And sometimes part of making art is working through feelings, working through emotions. A lot of times when we journal, it's to vent. Sometimes we don't even have words yet for what we're feeling. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that when I start moving something on the page, it moves energy. So art journaling can just be the process of working through emotions, working through thoughts, helping things come to the surface before we have words for them, or it can be after the fact to help relax, to help process. So yeah. it can be so many things. Have you been doing this your whole life, journaling? I will say since probably fourth grade, that's when I first remember creating my first journal. And my first journals were definitely art journals. I was doodling in fourth grade, for sure, <laughs> and not paying attention, <laughs> which is not good. Um, so I'm glad that you found a more you know, constructive way of, of, of putting that all together. Um, talk more about some of the benefits, though, that you see of, of creating an art journal. I think, number one, stress reduction and, and just playing in your creativity. People are sometimes way too serious in life. And a lot of times when adults pick up a crayon, a pastel, a paintbrush, they get in touch with parts of themselves that they've long ago forgotten. And that's very healthy for us. It can be great for releasing a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. It can be great for 
centering in your your thoughts if you can't come up with any ideas. Sometimes if we need to brainstorm and the ideas aren't coming, sometimes just letting go and stopping. If we're trying too hard, we're pushing too hard. And sometimes just by letting a pencil roam on a page, we can bring our ideas into focus, bring things to the surface. And it's almost like moving into different parts of the brain. Sometimes we're trying too hard if we're in the left brain and we're using logic. And sometimes things need to come to the surface through the right brain. So if we're letting our creativity flow, we get into the zone and we access different parts of ourselves. Yeah, I like that. Um, give us an example of the sorts of exercises that you, you might give to your, your students. And I, and I noticed you have a really beautiful journal here in studio that is super interesting. Is this all your work or student work? Well, I have two different examples. So as an artist, when I do exhibitions, I sometimes have interactive aspects of my um, shows. Okay. And I have this community journal. So I was at Aurora Public Art. I did a solo show and I had a whole room that was just for journaling. These pieces were my journal entries, these individual sheets. I filled the walls with all of these. Oh, wow. And these have very personal things that I chose. I, and I tell my students, hey, keep your journals to yourself because if you write for other people, you're not writing for yourself. You're thinking about addressing ah, them. You're thinking about what will they think. So I always tell people in whether I teach journaling workshops that aren't art focus, but even in the art focused workshops, I, I encourage people to write for themselves because if you're in, if you're talking to other people, it's not a journal. If you're writing for other people, then it's not so much a journal. That's interesting. But yeah. I break that rule, obviously. <laughs> because I read my journals to audiences and then by filling up walls with pieces like the ones I have here. And I mean it's so colorful for folks who can't see it. It's I mean they're of all different sizes. Lots of colors. You're using markers. You're using print, right? It looks like you're yeah. copying. There's uh, collage. There's collages. I use color copying, ripped paper. That just looks like a note just pasted onto yeah. your, um, right. your canvas. There. You can t- take post-it notes, anything you're thinking. You might even take post-it notes that you write on throughout the day and tack them on to something else. So there's really no limit to it. But you asked me what what kinds of advice do I give students. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I tell them is to just let go, don't censor yourself, be yourself, and and write for yourself, don't write for other people. And I'll give you an example of what one of these sheets says. My best ideas and realizations come to me while I'm listening to running water, while brushing my teeth, showering, and washing the dishes. Times when it's least convenient to write those ideas down, but I tell myself to remember everything. And another little note I tacked on here, why am I questioning what I feel in my heart? And that is one of the things Uh. that I tell people the most. Listen to your heart. So many people are, again, using too much logic going too much on what am I supposed to do the outside world Mm -hmm. and forgetting or mishearing the little whispers in their heart. Yeah, I love that. It also just seems like a great way to focus and to cope during long winters, which we're good at here in Chicago. Um, We recently had a conversation on the show, Rhonda, about self-care. And I'm just wondering if you could sum up for us how you see that intersecting with the practice of art journaling. Absolutely. I do teach self-care workshops and journaling is central to that. And one of the the biggest things I think people can do with self-care is don't judge yourself, especially when you're being creative and making art. So many people think they're not creative and they're hesitant to, to try something like this. But whether you're writing about what happened in your day and what you think about it and you're trying to do something creative, self-judgment is one of those things that is the opposite of self-care. How can you be honest with yourself? How can you grow if you're busy judging yourself and beating yourself up for how you feel? So many ideas get killed 
Absolutely. with judgment, right? Or self-judgment. Yeah. Judging how we feel, judging what we want to do in the world. And I think listening to our heart, our heart is not judging us. So yeah. cutting out self-judgment, accepting radical self-acceptance is the main thing I'm trying to get at. And I try that through multiple avenues. So I'll tell people to draw something and purposely try to make it look atrocious, ridiculous, silly, have fun with it. Because when it comes to art, most people think, oh, I'm not creative enough. I'm not creative. I can't draw a straight line. And I tell people, you're going to leave this class feeling like a creative person. But one of those things to get people out of the rut of trying too hard is attempt to make something really ridiculously ugly. Try to make something that you're going to hate. Most people fail to do that, and they end up liking what they create, or they end up having fun. That's awesome. Rhonda Wheatley is an artist and instructor at Hyde Park Art Center. Thank you so much. What a great idea. Thank you. And if you're looking for a way to meet new people with your hobby, we've got one more idea for you. Chicago is famously a great place for comedy. Some of the best comedians have come through places like Second City and Improv Olympic. But there are so many other neighborhood comedy clubs worth exploring as well. And best of all, you can join in on the laughs by taking classes to learn the art of comedy. Deanna Ortiz is a comedian and instructor at the stand-up club Lincoln Lodge. And Mila Rao is a comedian and instructor at Lincoln Square Improv. Deanna, first, tell us a bit about Lincoln Lodge and what it's all about. Uh, The Lincoln Lodge, we like to uh, claim ourselves as the nation's longest running independent comedy show. Uh, We started in the back room of a pancake house back in 99. And then from there, we've just kind of bounced around to different theaters, um, different bars doing our show, all with the end goal of having um, some big venue where we're able to have multiple shows all at one time, just really fostering the independent comedians of Chicago. Um, And now... In March of 2020, we opened, bad timing, but we opened and then quickly uh, shut down and then opened back up again, um, where we now have um, shows running almost every night of the week. And we also, um, for since 2008, we've been doing the classes. So we offer two different stand-up classes, entry level for people who have always wanted to try stand-up mm-hmm. or learn how to do stand-up, but just don't know how or where to start. I'm not following, Deanna. What happened in March 2020? Yeah, you know, sure. <laughs> just a couple things. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of things. Yeah. Uh, so same question to you, Mila. How did Logan Square Improv start? Yes, um, Logan Square Improv started in 2018, and um, the founders were actually running a weekly variety show called The Thursday Show in the back of a bar. Um, and I'm sensing a theme. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, and decided that they wanted to um, have their own space and kind of just have a little bit more creative control over the show. Um, so the theater started in 2018 and is now just a one-room theater. Um, we have shows Wednesday through Sunday, and we also offer a two-level class program. Um, our classes and most of our shows are focused on improv, but we do have stand-up shows and variety shows and things like that. So lots of different types of comedy. Yeah. Well, uh, let's dig into the, the classes a bit more mm-hmm. here. Uh, Deanna, Lincoln Lodge, is it like a curriculum? Yeah. Yeah. So um, especially the level one class, it starts with assuming that you have no knowledge at all about how to write stand-up, how to write anything, how to make a joke, how what even is a joke, any of that. We start at the very, very basics. And it's a five-week class where we just slowly start to build and do a lot of 
uh, brainstorming and note taking and kind of teaching the students how to look at what they see on the page and see like that's funny that's the joke. Yeah, I was gonna say, do you do you like how brutal are you? Are you like oh. that's not funny? <laughs> yeah, it's very intense. No, um, I because <laughs> I'm like if I come and I'm like you know I think I'm I'm yeah. pretty funny. Yeah, I. I definitely I've been teaching. (laughs) I've been teaching for since 2015, and I'm just gonna say there's always something funny to be found, always. And if it's just a matter of talking it out and talking it out, we do a lot of talking in the class, so (laughs) that's definitely something that we. there we will always find something funny in there. And then by the end of the five weeks, they have five minutes of stand-up. And the uh, classes end with a grad show where everybody invites their friends and family. Oh, that's nice. They get a clip to put on the internet and go viral. It's it's really great. So you don't have to have any experience with comedy. Yeah. yeah. And people from all over sign up for these classes. Like, it's very interesting to me of, like, I uh, got a lot of priests. I got a lot of lawyers that just want to learn how to, you know, either break out of their shell. People do it to... Uh, get better at public speaking and then some people will take the class and be like i want a netflix special you know there's it's across the board a lot of people want to just cross something off their uh you know new new year's resolution list and i think it's a great place yeah. to start yeah that, that's a great goal um so you you talked mila about classes offered at lsi you said you're focused on improv talk to me about what that looks like yeah um so similarly, you have to have, you know, no comedy background, no theater background, no background even in knowing what improv is to get started. Yeah. Um, and the level one class is really focused on, um, OK, what is improv? Here are some improv fundamentals. Here are the tools that you can use to have the most fun on stage, because that's the whole point is just to have fun. Do you find that your students are picking that up pretty easily? I do. Or is improv one that's more difficult to wrap their minds around? No, you know, I think um, there's so many um, first day jitters when we first get started and people feeling like they need to um, come in prepared and they don't know what to do and things like that. Um, but once we get started, I feel like that really, that anxiety kind of just sheds um, and people are able to get more comfortable. Um, it's also just kind of like a big community feel. The classes get really close. Um, classes stay together for level one and then level two. Often classes will continue on after graduation of the program to do shows on their own and things like that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what kind of improv? Do you all do? Is it like whose line is it anyway? Yes, that's a great question. So whose line is it anyway is um, a short form improv. So it's like focused on improv games, which we certainly do uh, as warm ups and um, to teach kind of improv fundamentals. But our focus is long form improv. So by the end of level one, um, the classes have two shows where they get to showcase a long form improv show, which is kind of just telling a story, um, a bit of a disjointed one, but telling a, a story and putting on a full show for their friends and family. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me about your journey, your personal journeys. How did you get into comedy, Deanna? Yeah. Um, I started doing stand up. I did stand up for the first time when I was 18. So I think I was just really you know, full of myself thinking like, I can do anything. (laughs) I was watching a lot of stand up on TV and Mm -hmm. just kind of thought I can do this. Um, And then I just started, I didn't really have like access to classes. It didn't even occur to me to take a class. I just started going, writing stuff down. I wrote a lot of stuff down and would kind of run it against my friends to see if they thought it was funny. Did you ever do any amateur nights? Oh, yeah. clubs. Yeah. Going to a lot of open mics, lots of open mics, lots of back rooms in the bars. And then I moved to Chicago where uh, it was a lot of the same stuff, just going to open mics, meeting people, networking, where then eventually you get booked on a show. Eventually you get booked on a showcase at like a club. 
And eventually you start running shows of your own. So it's all just, you know, slowly meeting and networking and building and writing and rewriting. Yeah. And Mila, what about you? Because, I mean, it's one thing to be told all the time, oh, you're so funny. You're so funny. But to take that and actually make a living out of it, that's, you know, it's a a jump. Yeah. I moved here in in 2015 and um, I'm from California. So the first winter especially (laughs) was brutal and I did not know what to do here. So I started taking improv classes and um, ended up meeting all of my friends through the improv community. So it started with classes and then we kind of formed teams and did shows and and things like that. But I had no theater background. My background was in um, summer camps and things like that where we would be, you know, pouring like expired milk on our heads to make the kids (laughs) laugh. Just ridiculousness. (laughs) you were still comfortable in front of an audience. Yeah, you know, I was I was comfortable in front of the audience. Something that I hear so much when I recommend improv classes to people is people saying, well, I'm not funny. I could never do that. And it's really not about being the class clown, although those folks are welcome. Um, <laughs> but it's just about listening and responding and playing and developing relationships with people on stage. So um, no theater background needed. It was just kind of something that I built up to and, um, you know. The more practice that you do, the more comfortable you get and the more fun that you have, which, again, is the goal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think, you know, at the end of the day, for, for a lot of people as well, new to this, stand up, the idea of it just sounds yeah. intimidating, right? You think mm-hmm. of the hecklers in the crowd. You think, oh, my God, they're going to throw something at me. Mm-hmm. So, Deanna, how do you help your students overcome that fear that they're just going to totally bomb on yeah. stage? I mean, I think that so many of my students are just so like nervous about just like, is any of this even worth saying? Like I get a lot of that type of anxiety. And so in the class, it's just very like slow. We start slow. You don't have to get onto a microphone until week three or four if you don't want to. Like we, when we are on mic, the lights are on, you know, all How that long stuff. is this initial set that you give them? Like five minutes. Five minutes. Oh, that's yeah. a lifetime. <laughs> that's <laughs> long. So many, uh, but we build, we go from three minutes to five minutes. So we, you come uh, one week with three minutes and then we build on that and then we build to five. And then if you take the second class, you're building up to eight minutes. And so it's just, it's kind of like a snowball effect. It just really gets out of control once you're like, oh, let's keep adding, let's keep adding stuff. Let's keep adding stuff. I want to talk about this now and this now, but um, about bombing, like uh, you're definitely not going to bomb like your first or second time, especially at the grad show. It's all just about getting comfortable in the, what you've written. If you believe in what you wrote and you think it's funny, it's going to go over, you know, selling your material. If you think it's funny, sell it to us and we're going to be here with you. You know, the class is very supportive in that way of like, you're never going to bomb in class. We're all going to work it out. And it's kind of like an open mic, you know, everybody, you go up in an open mic and you just try out new stuff. Um, Do other students jump in and maybe help you to end the joke or land the joke? Absolutely. That's like the best classes is when everybody is really collaborative and punching up their friends' jokes and listening to the other comedians and kind of being like, that was really funny what you talked about last week. Maybe try that again this week. Like those are the best classes. And that's how the best writing gets done, in my opinion. Yeah, it's super supportive. So then, Mila, what is your pitch then for folks, you know, to folks listening and maybe they think, oh, I might give this a whirl. What's your pitch for them to just go for it. Why should they try improv comedy? Yeah, you know, people come from all over. You mentioned this this earlier about people will um, come to improv classes to improve their public speaking or even to help with their anxiety, which I know seems counterintuitive, but there's something about the spontaneity and getting out of your head that can be really liberating. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I was saying earlier, you know, you really don't have to be funny. We say at the beginning of uh, level one classes, don't try to be funny. No need to wink at the audience. Um, <laughs> if you are in a, a scene 
seen about being in a grocery store. Think about uh, when you're really in a grocery store. What do you do in a grocery store? What do you say in a grocery store when you're talking to the butcher or whoever? Um, and that's what that's what you need to do on stage. So the only um, experience that you need is just having lived life, and that's what you're bringing on stage. So I think that I, I mean, of course, I'm biased, but I think anyone and everyone should try it. I think it's a great way to meet friends. Like I said, it can really help with folks' anxiety, um, improve public speaking skills, and then also just kind of build a sense of community. Yeah. Are you seeing a range of, of, of folks, like as far as age and absolutely age, ethnicities, yes. all of that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Age, ethnicity, all walks of life. We have folks coming in, um, you know, working in finance and they wanted to work on their public speaking or folks with a theater background who are just kind of like searching for scratching the itch of their artistic creativity. Um, there's all different folks that come. And um, it's also very cool to see people from all walks of life come together and, and make friends and um, just interact with people that they wouldn't normally. Yeah, that's that's the best part. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing the same thing, Deanna? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's really fun, too, to like on week one, you're kind of sitting around just like, OK, and what's everybody's names again? And then by the end of it, everybody's like, we're going to get coffee tomorrow. We're going to meet up and write at my, house, at my house at this time. It's just fun to see how everybody comes together. And some of them probably remain friends after their yeah. cohort. Ends, yeah. Right. And they go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say that you, you've got something called Femcom mm-hmm. at Lincoln Lodge. Can you talk to us about that? What is it all about? Femcom is um, an all female non- and non-binary identifying class. So um, we do have a co-ed version called Stand Up Seminary. But Femcom is the class that I teach. And it's all uh, female and non-binary um, because there wasn't really a space um, and there wasn't really a lot of female comedians at the time before this class got started. And uh, so that's kind of what our goal with Femcom is, is to bring more uh, female voices into the comedy scene and make sure that these uh, people feel supported and that there's a space for these performers to share their stories. Are you getting a good response? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The class started back in 2008 from uh, Cameron Esposito started it. And okay. they're a very well-established comedian now in Los Angeles. But um, the class has been running for a really long time and it's it's always a great time. So we've been framing these uh, series of conversations around coping during Chicago winters. Does comedy do that for you, Mila? Absolutely, yes. Like <laughs> coming I said, from California, exactly. Like <laughs> California I said, I'm coming girl. from California, so I'm used to being able to hike and play, for a lack of a better word, through the winter. So moving here, um, comedy and improv has really been that for me in the winter. It's just a space to play inside. Um, it's warm. It's playful. You interact with people and meet lots of people. I am not a big fan of bars. They're loud and dark. Um, <laughs> and so I have really found a space at improv theaters to um, interact with people and play with people and meet new people. And um, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Deanna? Is this a great winter hobby for Absolutely, you? Absolutely. Yeah. Winter, summer, spring. <laughs> I'm always, it's definitely all like, year. yeah, if I, if I didn't have stand up, like I'd just be home all the time and just not really doing anything. And so it gets me, it gets people out of the house to go see a show or support a show or perform on a show. I feel like, you know, there's always something to do in the back room of a bar <laughs> with a comedy <laughs> show. That was Deanna Ortiz, comedian and instructor at Lincoln Lodge, and Mila Rao, comedian and instructor at Logan Square Improv. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This episode of Reset was produced and edited by Andrew Merriweather. If podcasts are the sort of thing that you enjoy during long winters, how about subscribing to this one? We share fun conversations just like this every day of the week and on Saturdays. That's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you tomorrow.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.